Well, hey there, everybody. We'd like to invite you to visit South Dakota through the eyes of local Lou. She'll take you on a tour of lots of things to see and do. So enjoy your virtual visit through the eyes of local Welcome to the Local Lou podcast, an amateur history podcast where I explore South Dakota and the surrounding areas, reading historical markers and looking into interesting pieces of local history. Today, a life achievement of mine has been unlocked as I have guests on the show. I have Rachel and Leah from Hashtag History. Welcome, guys. Hi. Thank you so much for having us on. Thanks for coming to my show. This oh my is God, amazing. of course. This is great. A little personal history. Hashtag history was one of the first podcasts that I followed when I joined Instagram. And that was an awesome decision. You guys have really cool content and everything that you guys post is super interesting and history or cocktail related. Uh, you have really fun, um, timely discussions. I love the fascinating, um, the littler history episodes that you do. And then I really like, um, you guys just have a really huge, broad, broad spectrum of things that, of topics that you cover. And it's a really conversational, fun tone. You can definitely pick up on your guys's friendship and I love the cocktails along the way oh thank you so much that's so nice I know that was such a great review thank you we have a lot of fun with the podcast and we are really fortunate that our our uh purview is broad enough that we can cover a lot of really broad topics you really won't see us repeating too much content you know from episode to episode nor do we repeat Mm -hmm. cocktails ever (laughs) Excellent. Speaking of cocktails, we have one here. Yes. yes. So like a little, a little, just for your listeners who might not know, um, a little thing we do for every single episode is we kind of pair a cocktail that goes along either with the theme of that, like the topic of that episode, or perhaps like, you know, if it takes place in Manhattan, then we might drink a Manhattan and so on and so forth. So i chose a cocktail in honor of you it's Yay. called the Le- <laughs> yeah it's called the luscious lou um y- you know in honor of the local loop podcast so thank you again for having us on and i think all of us have our drinks ready right yes oh yes oh your guys's look so much better than mine maybe oh. i got cheap juice <laughs> <laughs> you can't you can sometimes tell the uh, price range on our cocktails <laughs> Yeah. Well, this this cocktail, the Luscious Lou, it contains um, one and a half ounces of orange infused vodka or just vodka if you don't have time to infuse or can't buy the infused kind. Um, a half ounce, a half ounce, ouch. a half ounce ouch. of orange liqueur. <laughs> ouch. <laughs> two and a half ounces of orange juice, two and a half ounces of cranberry juice, and then one and a half ounces of club soda to top. I I tried measuring and it just didn't, and I, our measurements are never, they come from the heart, not necessarily a measuring cup. <laughs> it's a suggestion. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Simply a suggestion. And, and I read it's supposed to be a layered drink, but I tried yeah. that and mine would not layer, but I see yours. Oh. Is beautiful. But yeah, yeah mine layered great. I actually have two of, I have two of them here. Um, <gasps> so because, <laughs> you know. Party. Oh my God. Yeah. Girl after our own heart. I like to be prepared. Oh, I that's love awesome. that. Oh my God. That's the best thing ever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But and my layers. So you can. Yeah, that's yeah. beautiful. And I love the orange. I almost put an orange slice on top, but I, I just ran out of time, if well, I'm being honest. After this last episode, I wanted to be fancy too. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. yeah our, All our, of our guests are outdoing us in the in the cocktail um, areas. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so another thing we like to do, we should take a sip, but then after we take a sip, let it sit for a minute and then we like okay. to rate it. Okay. okay. Cheers. Scale of one everybody. to ten. Cheers. 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 Oh yeah. Oh yes. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Oh yes. Yes. It's just yep. like a tequila sunrise almost. But better. Delicious. 
<laughs> vodka at all which is at all no yeah. I don't that can be really dangerous on a Friday night mm-hmm. um I feel like that's actually when it's time for me to go home when I'm like you can't even taste the alcohol of this. <laughs> nope, get her out of there get her and out of there and that's when you're taking just straight shots of tequila I can't yep. even taste mm-hmm. the alcohol <laughs> oh my god this is delicious it's really good mm-hmm I am feeling luscious too. So this is a great, <laughs> great cocktail. I may or may not have brought in extra of the infused <laughs> vodka. Just in case. Yeah. You guys, Just I feel case. so lame. Yeah, I, love I it. have water. <laughs> <laughs> That's the worst. I wish All you right. had let me in on the scoop here. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. What's your, what's your rating? Well, I mean, I'm going to have to give it a 10 because I've never had a cocktail named after me. And this is also extra delicious. Okay. All right. I I think I'm going 10 as well. One, because it is bomb.com. And Mm -hmm. two, just the overall experience. We're super excited to be recording with you because, I mean, you've just been such a huge support for us Mm -hmm. since the very beginning. And it super means a lot. So I think it's the experience, the friendship, and the drink itself that makes it a 10. Yeah, I, I second that. I'll I'll give it a 10 as well for all the same reasons. And then also it's been a really tough week and I need this. So <laughs> that too. <laughs> yeah, take take sips now before we get talking. <laughs> no, that was really good. I'm gonna read you guys a historical marker and it's Yay. kind of gonna be our jumping off point for for this topic. So this historical marker um is called Dakota Conflict and it is in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. It says on August 25th, 1862, Willie Amadon, son of Joseph B. Amadon, stumbled upon a war party of Santee Sioux hiding in a cornfield on the bluffs north of Sioux Falls City. The concealed warriors were waiting for nightfall or dawn to launch a surprise assault against Sioux Falls City. No one in the village was aware that the Dakota conflict had already erupted in Minnesota. Willie's chance discovery cost him his life and his father's life as well. The next day, soldiers found and carried the bodies to the Amadon Stone House, while a small number of soldiers remained to protect the settlers. A scouting party was sent out with orders to ride until they had found and punished the murderers. Village points near this location, mounted Sioux warriors suddenly appeared and began to fire down the bluff at the military camp in the village below. When the soldiers returned fire, the attackers were repulsed without loss of life on either side. The clash was the only Indian attack recorded against Sioux Falls City. Historical marker Dakota conflict in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. So we're going to talk a little bit about the Dakota conflict. It has a lot of different names. Dakota Uprising, Little Crow's War, the Dakota War. And they're all different names for the same event or kind of maybe different pieces of the same event. The Dakota War was like a prairie fire that ignited out of nowhere and it burned uh, brightly and destroyed everything in its path. And just like that, it was over. And there was a lot of scorched earth left behind in its wake, but it would someday heal a six week war that would have a lasting impact and leave a dark and shameful history of genocide and concentration camps. But it would be cleaned up for history books as an uprising that ended with Native Americans on reservations. Exactly. The Dakota Sioux uprising in 1862 started a military engagement that wouldn't end until the Native American people were systematically displaced and slaughtered, almost wiped away completely from their lands. Those who survived were herded onto reservations. In this, the land is the story. Settlers' lives were made better, but at the expense of the Native people. And this is a super kind of painful history Mm -hmm. story, but we should talk about it out loud Yeah, uh, because there are consequences that are still being lived out today. Some of the things that we'll talk about is kind of acknowledgement that um, this is unsettling history and we should feel uncomfortable learning about it but not knowing it is worse yes Mm. I I love that you say that that we should feel yeah snaps I like that you said we should feel uncomfortable (laughs) learning about it history doesn't always have to be pretty and history does not always have to make you happy and it is extra disturbing when there are you know the more uncomfortable pieces of our history that are purposefully whitewashed and purposefully cleaned up for our textbooks 
And so children aren't learning about these incidents. We don't learn about them when we're in high school because they've been cleaned up for our history textbooks. But knowing about them is so important. And like you said, not knowing is way, way worse than just knowing the real, true reality of the history of this land and of these people. Not knowing your history makes you tend to repeat it. Right. So I think, I think, you know, learning about these ugly histories, that's kind of, we folk, we tend to focus a lot on, you know, controversy, conspiracy, corruption, like ugly stuff, like stuff that isn't fun necessarily because it's so important to focus Mm -hmm. on. Absolutely. Uh, Between 1837 and 1858, the Dakota tribes agreed to a series of treaties that exchanged the Dakota's land for money and food. In the case of the Treaty of Travers de Sioux, where the first two papers that the Native Americans agreed upon uh, were the treaty, and then there was a third paper that they signed that was a completely different document that had never been explained to them. Wow. That document was called the Trader's Papers, and it effectively took away a large portion of the cash payment and annuities that they just signed for. During the uh, years leading up to the war, the United States government began to pass a number of policies such as the Homestead Act, Mm -hmm. which would accelerate settlement in the Western frontier and make this whole situation even worse. Yep. Mm -hmm. The United States Civil War also began, and so that was in... um, April of 1861 that that began and eventually meant that the U.S. government would fall behind on its payments to the Indian agencies. So now we have a new rush of settlers due to the Homestead Act. We have the what had already begun the stripping of the tribe of their culture and their way of subsistence living and herding them onto smaller areas of land. Um, The Dakota didn't have any real way to feed themselves consistently without help. Um, The situation would become very combustible in the summer of 1862. There was a poor harvest in 1861. Uh, The Dakota didn't have enough food to survive, and they called it a starving winter of 1861 into 1862. Wow. The annuity payments for the treaty never arrived, and likely due to the Civil War occurring to the East is why these were not arriving on time. The Dakota were starving. There was an Indian agent who refused to release food stores until the annuity arrived. So there was food there. It just wasn't being handed out. Uh, Traders in the area were also very weary to trade, knowing that this annuity might not come. Yeah. Indian agencies were government outposts uh, operated by agents who would act as liaisons between the Native Americans and the United States governments. Um, another intricate piece of the puzzle is the fact that traders or store owners would charge Native Americans exorbitant prices. They would actually collect the total bill directly from the Indian agent as opposed to from the Native American that had bought the goods. Oh my God, I didn't know mm. that. Wow. Like when I pay my bills, I, I write out a check and I pay them. They don't come into my bank account and take what they right. think that I owe. Right. Yeah, so that's right. a, that's a hard part where I would feel not okay with that. Oh, absolutely. No. Uh, before we get into like a timeline of events, there are a couple people that I think um, kind of pop out as good to know a little bit of background on them. And there's a ton more in this story, but these are a few that pop out to me. Mm-hmm. We have Andrew Merrick, who is a store owner who refused to sell the Dakota on credit figuring that he wouldn't get paid for his goods. And he responded to their pleas that their children were starving by saying, let them eat grass or their own dung. (gasps) Oh my God. That's like, let them eat cake. Yes, exactly. (laughs) And what's weird about this one to me, and it's actually weird with a couple of these guys that we're going to be talking about, is their wives are Native American women. I feel so weird about that. How could you be married to and have a family with somebody and then treat their people absolutely in such an awful way Mm -hmm. yeah I see that contradiction a lot just with any man that's married to any woman that is not yeah I'm being serious like I can see both of you laughing right right now but but of any any um background or or you know nationality any man that is not supportive of equal rights and women's rights how are you I mean you are being contradictory of I would assume, I would hope the person you love most, the person you trust most, the person you share the most with, right. you don't have a respect there. Mm-hmm. 
Wow. Yeah. And again, like what we said earlier, it might've been before we started recording. We also have to take into context the, right. the like the time people weren't marrying for love necessarily right. like they are now because they love and care about someone. Not that that's an excuse. I still think you should have respect for the person that you're married to and their culture, yeah. but um, yeah, that's just an ugly truth of the time. I actually super duper agree with you there in the fact that we're talking about um, the, it was a, the West back then, but you know, it's just this prairie barren area. Unless you brought a woman with you, you're not going to stumble across ones. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm sure these weren't all love matches. It was, Hey, there's a lady. There's availability. a girl. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Availability for sure. Yeah. Ugh. But I do think that you do bring up a good point that these people that were literally married to Native Americans obviously had zero respect for their spouse because they didn't respect their cultures. They didn't respect their people. They didn't respect their livelihood and ensuring that they and their families were taken care of. In the most basic of ways, like access to food. And I can see if I were in a really stressful situation like that maybe saying no but then like giving them food like later (laughs) yeah putting it putting it outside or something so you can still come off as being a strong you know person but then you still help the people that are starving still being a basic human decent person yeah it didn't happen um so (laughs) then we have charles (laughs) We have Charles Flandreau, um, and he at one time was an agent for the Sioux and territorial judge in Minnesota, and he actually lived in Travers de Sioux, Minnesota, so that's not just the name of a treaty, it's actually a place, and so he lived in there and practiced law in the 1850s, and there's actually a Flandreau, South Dakota, about 40 minutes from here that I will be going to very soon um, because there is somebody from our story today is buried there, so I'm going to go visit their grave this weekend and see see what's up with that, but uh, then we... That's so cool. These are my hobbies, guys. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, winter in South Dakota, so this is all I have. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah, uh, we have Alexander Ramsey, who in 1855 became the mayor of St. Paul, Minnesota. Ramsey was elected the second governor to Minnesota after statehood and served from 1860 to 63. And Ramsey is credited with being the first Union governor to commit troops to the Civil War. He happened to be in D.C. when fighting broke out, and he ran right over to the White House and offered Minnesota's services to Abraham Lincoln immediately. Um, As for the Dakota War, however, Ramsey declared on September 9th of 1862 that the Sioux Indians of Minnesota must be exterminated and driven out forever beyond the borders of the state. So like, like contradictory i don't i don't know it's just so weird yep i agree um and actually this next next person we're going to meet is little crow um who plays a huge part in a lot Mm. of a lot of different stories but specifically here and there's a quote there at the end that really just um kind of evokes something for me so little crow was born teote duta and forgive me if i said that wrong i looked it up that was really impressive, actually. Still not 100%. <laughs> I'm trying, though. Um, but he later changed it to Little Crow, and he was picked by his father to succeed him as chief, and that was because his brother was dead. So, mm. you know, he was alive and a boy, so he mm-hmm. got to be chief. Mm-hmm. And in, 1850, in the 1850s, he would actually be ri- widely recognized as a spokesperson for the lower bands of the Dakota people. And he would go on to sign the Mendota and Travers de Sioux treaties. Um, by the 1860s, though, he was leading a life trying to kind of straddle assimilation, but also care for his people and his culture. So he did have a shorter haircut and wore uh, clothes uh, that were um, like suits. And he lived in a, a timber uh, home. Um, so he was kind of trying to live on both sides of that, uh, possibly knowing that the only way that his people were going to survive is to do what the white people told them to do, since they were now incredibly outnumbered. Um, fully aware of the Civil War, Little Crow is said to have given this speech before entering the Dakota War. And he, he told his people, yes, they fight among themselves, but if you strike at them, they will all turn on you and devour you and your women and your little children, just as the locusts in their time fall on the trees and devour all the leaves in one day. Oh, wow. And so I really, 
I guess like is the worst term to use, but I appreciate what he's saying there because during the Civil War, it's easy to say, oh gosh, they can't even get along to do things for themselves. Mm -hmm. But the second we do something, they sure will (laughs) unite and come at us. And he's He's right. Totally right. Mm -hmm. Yes. Totally right. And I also want to kind of touch on what you said too about uh, him both trying to retain his culture and take care of his people, but also assimilating because he knew that that was the way to survive. And we actually addressed that in one of our episodes we covered on the American Indian boarding schools. And that, that uh, ideology came up several times and uh, it was the ideology of the, like the white savior that these white men were doing the right thing by assimilating Uh, the Native Americans to white culture because they wanted them to be successful. They wanted them to live happy, healthy, successful lives. And the only way you can do that is by adopting white culture. And it's just so problematic, so not okay, so unacceptable. But I completely understand where Little Crow's coming from because that's the messaging he's getting. The and, and not just the messaging he's getting that he's seeing that that the only way I can have a successful life is to assimilate to the white man's culture. Absolutely. Um, and then we have Henry Hastings Sibley, um, who was a fur, tra- a fur trader and a friend of the Dakota people, even having a child with a Dakota woman, red blanket woman. She was the daughter of a chief. And so he knew the language, he knew the people, and he actually helped with negotiating of Mandota and Traverse de Sioux treaties. But this wasn't out of the goodness of his heart. Um, When faced with moral dilemmas, Sibley seemed to look out for himself. These treaties were not good for the Native Americans, and Sibley himself profited off the treaties. What? Which is interesting. Wow, I never saw that coming. Huh. Yeah, he would actually walk away with money that would help him pay off his own debts as a trader. And then he kind of, after that, never looked back. Like, he went on and created I guess a proper life for himself where he marries a white woman and he has a family and he lives in a stone house and becomes the first governor of Minnesota and he actually has zero military experience uh, before the Dakota War and the second the Dakota War starts to happen a militia is formed and next thing you know he's just going right up the ranks oh wow if if people could see our faces right now In Minnesota, there's tons of parks and schools and all sorts of things named after Sibley. And it's one of those where I'm not asking to like wipe away history, but maybe get a couple other names out there. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that that reminds me of we have a local um, like there were a ton of local streets and and an arboretum at the university I work at here in Sacramento, California, named after Gady, who you know, was a eugenicist and not the greatest guy. Uh, And eventually, luckily things are starting to get renamed. In our Mm -hmm. lifetime, we, I've seen at least two or three, our Arboretum is no longer named after him. Yeah. A street I used to live on is no longer called Gady. It's called Riverbend. Like, yeah. Oh, I like Riverbend. That sounds pretty. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's nice. But that's, that that reminds me a lot of Sibley. Mm -hmm. That's crazy. I also, it wasn't lost on me that his middle name is Hastings. And you guys covered the Donner Party, and you remember Hastings. He yes, sucks. of course. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this guy sucks, too. Um, and, I mean, it's just weird, though, because he doesn't, like, his whole life, that's what's confusing to me, is, like, where was that moment where all of a sudden it didn't help him out anymore? Yeah. So yeah. I think that's exactly what it is. There was There must have been a key moment where um, being a friend to the Dakota people just wasn't you know there was another opportunity that went completely against that and some people are sellouts like that unfortunately yeah Yeah. right like when they're out in the middle of nowhere and it's a territory it's fine but the second they're a state and there are other white people around it's like oh I barely know them yeah (laughs) yeah yeah it's confusing but now that we've met some of the key people that are going to be in the timeline we can kind of get back on the path there and I will reference really quick what you already did, which is episode 43 of Hashtag History. You guys talk about the American Indian boarding schools and you reference how little we have progressed and how yeah. far we have to go. And that history that we're ashamed of, but facing head on. I believe that's 
the best practice for the timeline of the Dakota War of 1862. It's super important to remember these events did not come out of nowhere, and there was a very clear path that didn't have a ton of other options that it was going to lead to. Right. Um, this was their death rattle. Yep. It was their their shot mm-hmm. to try. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Nobody comes off great in this, but it's it's hard to not feel so much for the Native American people. Right. Yeah. But yeah, to get into the timeline of the war, August 17th of 1862 is the spark that's going to ignite the war. Four Dakota hunters kill five settlers near Acton Township, Minnesota. There is no full story that is accurate. Mm-hmm. On this, we have different stories from different sides, but everybody agrees the four hunters killed five settlers. They immediately run back to their village um, and explain what happened. So they weren't hiding it, yeah. Um, but and they knew it was wrong. So a war council is held, and there is an a, appeal to Chief Little Crow, and they they are pushing for a war on the white people. And he reluctantly agrees, um, having said what I stated earlier about if we turn on them, they will all turn on us immediately. Mm-hmm. But he then ends up saying that I'm not a coward. Yeah. And I will die with you guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he's willing to die for this cause. August 18th, warriors attack the lower agency and kill traders, government employees, including Philander Prescott and uh, good old let them eat grass, Andrew Merrick. (laughs) Yeah, not surprisingly, (laughs) the store of Andrew Merrick was uh, targeted. Two employees were killed as Merrick escaped out the second floor window and was trying to get to cover when he was also killed. Yeah, sounds about right. Now, some people do say that Merrick's corpse was found with grass stuffed in his mouth. Whether that's a fact or a fable, it doesn't really matter. Like, the idea behind it, it makes sense. I don't yeah. feel bad. Yeah. Let, let him eat grass. How about that? Yep. <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm. Um, on that same day, a relief force was sent from Fort Ridgely, but they are defeated by the Dakota Warriors. And the Warriors attack farms and settlements in Renville and Brown Counties and also Milford Township. And that one's the hardest hit where 50 residents are killed. Then we go into August 19th, where Native American John Otherday helps evacuate white inhabitants of the upper agency. News of the events at the lower agency reaches Governor Alexander Ramsey, and he commissions Henry Sibley to lead a force of a volunteer state militia against the Dakota. A small group of Dakota warriors attack New Ulm. This skirmish lasts several hours and leaves five settlers dead. The following day, the people of New Ulm elect Charles Flandreau as a military commander. And over the next few days, almost a thousand refugees flood New Ulm. About 300 of those thousand people are equipped to fight. I I don't want to interrupt, but I'm noticing there's a lot of what sounds like French names. Is is South Dakota like full of French people? Such a great question. I have (laughs) well because Flandreau. It's I don't know. I have no idea. I I I feel like that's like the second or third Mm -hmm. where I was like that's definitely French. Yeah, there's some weird names here, and I don't know. Um, I know that none of them, at least so far, were born in Minnesota or Dakota territory. Like okay. they're born in places like New York and and then they kind of migrated. A lot of them came from Detroit. Like they weren't they were born in Detroit, but they had like lived and worked in Detroit. The ones that are traders, um mm-hmm. for traders, not traders, sorry. <laughs> kind of traders. But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But also yes. Uh yeah, they a lot of those came from Detroit. Um so I don't know the answer. <laughs> Um, yeah, actually, it's just interesting. Yeah. And I was just doing a real quick search to kind of figure out like, cause we know about the Louisiana purchase in 1803. Mm-hmm. And so that, and, and for anyone that needs the reminder, that was the acquisition of the territory by the United States from France. And so I was just kind of checking out some of those areas and seeing if there was any correlation there. And it does actually say that in 1743, two French explorers were actually the first Europeans to arrive in South Dakota and they claimed the land for France. So. Okay. Yeah. You learn something well, new I every day. very French. I should really, yeah. Wee wee. Need to get a beret. Okay, this is exciting, guys. Yeah. Gonna have a very French weekend. Yeah. I like it. 
Uh, so in August uh, 20th through the 22nd, the Dakota lead two attacks on Fort Ridgely, but are turned back each time. Westlake is attacked and 13 more people are killed. Lake Chatek settlement is attacked. Women and children are being taken hostage and are carried into the Dakota Territory. On August 23rd, there's a second attack on New Ulm, and this time more than 600 Dakota warriors have assembled to fight. However, um, Charles Flandreau and his militia are able to hold off the attack, which is surprising because they only had those couple hundred people um, that were ready to fight. So that's pretty impressive. On August 25th, Flandreau leads an evacuation of New Ulm. Uh, Little Crow retreats to the upper reservation. And in the Dakota Territory near the falls of the Big Sioux River, Judge Joseph Amadin and his son Willie are killed by a Dakota War Scouting Party. This would set off exactly what the goal was, which was um, have the settlers flee from the city. And they would not return for two and a half years until May 5th, 1865, where the area was picked for a new fort that would eventually be named Fort Dakota. Mm. August 26th. The Upper Dakota men form a soldier's lodge to oppose the war, effectively creating the Dakota Peace Party. In August 28th, Sibling and his men reach Fort Ridgely. The fort has been under siege since the first day of the war, and there are 350 refugees inside. Then we have September 1st, under the command of Major Joseph R. Brown, 170 civilians and soldiers dispatched from Fort Ridgely to bury the remains of settlers who had been killed in the war. They selected an open piece of ground near Birch Coulee, I think, <laughs> Creek for a camp. And during the night, 200 Dakota soldiers surround the camp, outnumbered and exposed. The detail is under siege for the next 36 hours. Oh, wow. On September 2nd, the peace party opens up negotiations with Sibley. And September 3rd, the siege at Birch Coulee Creek ends when Henry Sibley arrives with reinforcements and artillery. Brown's force lost 13 men, 90 horses, and 50 other men were injured. Oh, that's like when I watch old westerns and all the horses are getting shot that I hate it. (laughs) Um, Out of all of those uh, fatalities, there were only two recorded Dakota deaths. On September 3rd through the 4th, a Dakota force led by Little Crow fights a skirmish at Acton and they get barricaded at Forest City in Hutchinson. Fort Abercrombie on the Red River is attacked and surrounded. Sibley learns that the Dakota have over 250 hostages and he begins to negotiate their release. On September 6th, Major General John Pope, who just lost the Battle of Bull Run, is in charge, um, who is charged with suppressing the uprising and appointed commander of the U.S. troops in the Northwest. So they're starting to take this seriously now. They're getting the real military involved, getting people from the Civil War directed over to here. Um, And September 19th, Sibley leaves Fort Ridgely to advance up the Minnesota River Valley, moving towards the Dakota's camp. On September 23rd, Sibley and his men stumble upon Dakota in the tall grass near Woodlake and are able to defeat them. Little Crow and his followers flee. On September 26th, the Dakota Peace Party surrenders hostages at Camp Relief. When they do so, they release 239 captives. After the captives were returned, 1,200 Native Americans were taken into custody. And then on September 28th, a commission of military officers is established by Henry Sibley, beginning to try the Dakota men accused of participating in the war. So how much time are we looking at from start to finish with this? It was like just over a month, it looks like. Right. It was, they call it the six week war. And I think they're kind of counting a little bit on, on the end there. Uh, But yeah, so it was really fast. And especially when you're thinking of these soldiers are walking all these places Mm. and, you know, we do have a pretty, pretty good railroad system like now, (laughs) but it's it's something to think about just how these humans and items are getting from place to place. And when you think about, they were saying New Ulm had um, a couple hundred people and then a thousand people come in. Like, how are you going to feed them? And what are you going to... What resources are there? Right. The logistics of things. Yeah. Right. And then all your horses are dead. There's a lot going on. Yeah. (laughs) There's so much going on. And in such a short space of time too. 
So this yes, is yeah. where uh, Leah and I are kind of taking off on the research we did. And we pick up in the aftermath of this horrific conflict. And one thing that I do want to start off with and clarify up front is that I'm going to be using the term Sioux and Dakota interchangeably. And that's because the Dakota are a Native American tribe that belong to the Sioux Nation. So I just wanted to say that up front. In my research, I kind of interchangeably refer to the Sioux and the Dakota. So like you already shared, mm -hmm. following the surrender of the Sioux, more than a thousand Native Americans were taken into custody. A commission was established to carry out more than 400 separate trials. Some of these individual trials didn't even last five minutes apiece. So obviously, I mean, let's talk about the logistics of that. Like, obviously, true evidence and defense is not being presented here in no. less than five minutes. No. They, they averaged about 25 trials a day. On one particular day, they held some 40 trials. It's important to note that in addition to many of the trials lasting less than five minutes apiece, none of the Sioux had had the proceedings explained to them, nor were any of them represented by a defense attorney. It's also important to note that these were criminal trials, right? And yet they were not tried before a court with a judge and a jury. Rather, they were tried by a five-member military commission made up of volunteers from the Minnesota Infantry, a.k.a a group composed entirely of biased Minnesota settlers. Yeah, right. People who what? felt attacked by these by these people, the people that were directly impacted by it. Right. Exactly. I I mean they can't they just, they don't have an opinion or a bias in any of this, right? No. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so these clearly were not typical trials. Typically and I'm going to break this down a lot, although I feel like anyone listening to this is like, they know this, because <laughs> typically those killed in the course of a battle or war are not considered to have been murdered, right? I mean, this right. is the very essence of war. To define it more specifically in terms of what is and is not allowed in war, so long as all parties involved have openly declared their hostility toward one another, which was clearly the case here, right? killing an enemy on the battlefield is indeed legal right obviously right war crimes that are punishable under the law referred to actions carried out in the course of war that violate those generally accepted rules of war so trying the dakota for acts that they committed during the course of war that are perfectly acceptable rules of war was illegal we do know that some of the dakota did engage in assaults outside of those typical of war rules such as massacre and and rape of white settlers and we will circle back to that shortly but just understand for the most part that the dakota soldiers were being tried illegally yeah um the course of these trials also wasn't conducted in a typical manner um they intentionally began many of these trial proceedings with the defendant's testimony which is pretty much the worst thing you can do mm -hmm. for a defendant mm -hmm. um if we think this through in a typical american trial setting the defense generally presents character witnesses and eyewitnesses and expert witnesses all before calling the defendant to the stand if they call the defendant at all a lot of right. the times you know they they just say sit there quietly and look pretty you know mm -hmm. but in many of these cases the defendants were the first to speak meaning that they were completely open and exposed to cross-examination mm. by the end of these trials the military commission had convicted 303 sioux prisoners of murder and rape and had them sentenced to death in a case such as this the execution of those convicted required the approval of the president of the U.S., which at the time, Rachel, you know this, was Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> I don't know that everybody knows that. Yeah, I mean, um, you could, when, I, you're right. I could one trillion percent. Just give me a, a year and I can tell you. <laughs> I can tell you the president. Yeah, you're weird like that. Um, <laughs> and he's looking over her shoulder right now. I know he's literally he's listening in what you saying about him here. Oh. <laughs> yeah. When Lincoln was notified of these executions via telegraph, he wrote back that he needed to see the full and complete record of each and every one of the convictions before he could make a decision, which we talked about offline, like is so cool of him, like yeah. to take the time to do this. Despite obviously being the president in the midst of the Civil War, that required an 
unimaginable amount of his time and his energy. And Lincoln personally went through every one of the trial records and issued a statement on December 11th, 1862, where he stated that he could not justifiably condemn all of the convicted to death when a clear distinction had not been made in all cases between those that had participated in massacres and those that had participated in the battles. In the end, Lincoln approved the execution of 38 men. He had initially approved for the execution of 39, but became aware of information shortly after his initial statement that led him to doubt one of the convicted guilt. And something I'd like to touch on there, too, is just kind of how scary that is, that he reviewed these hundreds of cases, brought it down to 38 men, but then still, even within the short period of time before they were executed, learned of, oh, whoops, one of those. I'm sorry, let me take that back. He approved the execution of 39 men, but then in the short period of time before they were executed, learned that, like, oh, wait, I'm not totally sure about one of these guys. That's what makes me. Yeah. So that's what makes me kind of doubt our legal system sometime oh well and yet for me it makes me like so thankful that it was clearly on his mind like he was taking Mm -hmm. this the he was taking this the correct amount of serious yeah yeah no I completely agree that we have this level of respect for him of course that as the president during the civil war took the time and the energy to review all of these cases to make sure that he felt in his heart that yes I can justifiably condemn these 38 men to death but just hearing that there was still one person that he condemned to death and then later on changed his mind I mean how many of these other men were innocent that I I just it it leaves wiggle room and it makes me feel gross yeah you (laughs) don't want wiggle room when you're hanging people you can't no exactly exactly There should be no wiggle room in a death sentence. Mm -mm. So on December 26th, 1862 in Mankato, did I get it? Mankato? Okay. Mm -hmm. Minnesota. Mm -hmm. The 38 men were executed by hanging, making this the largest single day mass execution in American history up to that point and still to this day. The men were all placed on a singular scaffold platform, and with the chopping of a single rope by an axe, they all fell to their deaths at the same moment. Yeah, like, you- I know this isn't important, but the, the visual yeah. of that and the logistics mm-hmm. of building a yes. platform long enough for 38 men, like, why? And the fact that there was an audience there that was excited to see these 38 men fall to their death, that's just horrendous sorry Rachel I think you uh, there was a delay there so I cut you off but like there's it's so gross to think but yeah it was so commonplace for people to go Mm -hmm. and watch people be hanged back in the day it's weird yeah it's just (laughs) weird (laughs) it is yeah so if you're a listener of the hashtag history podcast you might recall that we actually had an episode it was our episode 54 in which we discussed the Burke and Hare murders and in that episode we talked a lot about the supply and demand of cadavers for medical studies in Edinburgh in the 1800s we didn't touch on the study of cadavers here in America during that episode but America was going through a very similar issue in which there simply were not enough bodies to perform these medical endeavors on Because of this, following the execution of the 38 Sioux men, the singular grave that all of the bodies had been dumped in was dug up and the bodies were distributed to local doctors. Okay, you guys are still there. I felt like you both were frozen at the same time, and so I wasn't Mm -hmm. sure if I was still coming through. (laughs) Okay. Oh, no, you were, you were. Disgust. Yeah, we're just disgusted. Yeah, it, that's true. It might have just been me yeah. physically frozen you in both, disgust. You both were like this. Like, yeah. I was like, uh. Mm. <laughs> Don't like <Quite>. it. <laughs> so, interestingly, one of the doctors to obtain one of these bodies was a man named William Worrell Mayo. If that name sounds familiar, that is because he is, of course, one of the people responsible for creating what would later become the world-renowned Mayo Clinic that we all know of today. The body that Mayo collected belonged to a leader of the Dakota named He Who Stands in the Clouds. The body was used for medical research and was even on display for a time at the clinic. Within the last few years, the Mayo Clinic has released an apology for the mistreatment of the Dakota leader and actually now offers a scholarship in the name of he who stands in the clouds to an American Indian medical school candidate or a student at the Mayo Clinic's graduation school or nursing program. 
And as part of the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, the parts of the body the Mayo Clinic was able to locate have since been returned to the Lower Sioux Indian Reservation in Morton, Minnesota, and have been formally buried. Ugh, that's so sad, but I am glad that the Mayo Clinic is making reparations for their wrongs. Um, Those remaining that had been convicted but not sentenced to death were eventually forced into internment camps in Davenport, Iowa, where they would remain there for three years. During the course of their internment, yeah, local missionaries visited regularly in their attempts to convert the natives to Christianity, something we see time and time again in American history. Mm-hmm. Just look at our episode. What what episode was it? I would say it's both. Uh, uh, yeah, I don't remember. Do you remember the exact number? You are episode oh, no. something. We had an episode about the American Indian boarding schools, and we also did an episode about Pocahontas. And in both yeah. of those, right. we, see, we see the theme over and over and over again of attempting to strip away the culture. culture of native americans and converting them to christianity yeah so by the time they were released from these internment camps it is estimated that close to one third of the prisoners had died due to the horrendous sanitation conditions of the camps which is just gross and horrendous um and then and horrendous. While those convicted were sent to internment camps in Iowa, the remaining approximately 1,600 Dakota women and children were forced into an internment camp on Pike Island in Minnesota. Uh, more than 300 would go on to die due to the horrendous living and sanitation conditions in that camp. It was also reported that many prisoners were assaulted by soldiers at that camp. Mm. And then to sum all this up, which I feel like I can't make any judgment, of course, having not had these lived experiences of like, what is the worst part of this story? Because all of these things that they've been through were so, so horrendous. But I feel like this here uh, is just really the nail in the coffin. Because by April of 1863, the U.S. Congress had declared that all treaties that had been previously made with the Dakota were now void and meaningless. And thus, the mission to rid Minnesota of the Dakota people began. In fact, for any Dakota found not abiding by these new rules and leaving their homeland, a $25 bounty was placed on their scalp. The Minnesotan Dakota were forced into a reservation called the Crow Creek Reservation, which was an area of land currently suffering from a drought. It would not be until the 1930s that the Upper Sioux Indian Reservation would be created near Morton and 150 years after the war that former Minnesotan Governor Mark Dayton formally apologized for the massacre and called for August 17th, 2012 to be a day of remembrance and reconciliation. Many memorials and monuments have been established throughout the years in remembrance of the tragedy. But the horrible mistreatment of the Native Americans of Minnesota has passed down via oral tradition, and it continues to be a tough topic for many Minnesotans to discuss. <laughs> I know it's a it's a bad it's an awful situation. There is there really isn't a ton that there are no reparations that could ever repair that. No. So I think that is why it's great that we're talking about it that's yes one thing we can do is make sure that other people know about it and they can look into it for themselves and get their own thoughts and opinions on it but just i lived in davenport iowa i had no idea that that took place there um right i live in sioux falls south dakota and i see all these historical markers that pertain to the dakota war and i did not know what the dakota war was (laughs) and so i think it's for me at least just that if people can educate themselves if they're interested in it on it I think that's super important and really cool Mm -hmm. too to know this part of our history and it's not the only time that the that we made these kind of decisions yeah no absolutely this is a history upon history and history of this right but I do think what what you said is so important that the first step we can take in reconciliation which there isn't going to be reconciliation it's been over 150 years and great thank you so much for issuing an apology more than 150 years later right Right. and finally kind of converting some of these monuments memorials so that they aren't 
whitewashing the event anymore, but talking about what really truly happened. But even still, the first step that we can take in any form of reconciliation is acknowledging what happened, acknowledging these lived experiences and learning about them ourselves. That is the first step that we can always take is learning our history, studying our real history and not trying to whitewash it. Well put, Rachel. Well put. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. One cocktail down and, you know, things sometimes come out more eloquently. Sometimes it's the exact opposite, but you know. <laughs> I would say though, just a huge thank you to you, not only for having us on the podcast, but also for suggesting this topic because something we had talked about off air for anyone that doesn't listen to hashtag history or that doesn't follow us on uh, Instagram or anything, you, you might not know this. I'm a huge Abraham Lincoln fanatic and I have been my whole life. And so I did know a little bit about this incident simply because of Lincoln's involvement. I knew that there was an incident, some, some conflict between white settlers and native Americans and that Lincoln had personally reviewed hundreds of court documents to determine the innocence or guilt of the native americans that's all that i knew um and so i appreciate you suggesting this topic because i learned so much and i mean then uh, like i said the most important thing is to learn our history and to acknowledge it and i feel better having done that absolutely i'm so thankful you guys were able to help me out on this this is such a big topic and i know i don't have the chops for it so i was so glad to get your guys's hands in there with me and do some research and find out these things so we can kind of share what we see in here and kind of have it go from there yeah we're so honored to be beyond especially having this be a piece of history that obviously is is from the area and the region that you're in um so thank you for letting us be a part of that thank yeah, you guys thank so you. much and thank you for my cocktail oh. totally <laughs> gonna do this now you didn't, you're, yeah I was <laughs> Thank you again to Hashtag History for coming on Local Lou so we could discover the Dakota Conflict historical marker and learn about the Dakota War of 1862. If you haven't already, check out Hashtag History on Facebook or Instagram or search for them wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can catch me on Instagram too, at Local Lou Podcast, where I'll be sharing pictures of Little Crow's grave in the Dakota Soldiers Memorial in Flandreau, South Dakota, that commemorates the 38 Dakota men hung in Mankato, Minnesota, December 26, 1862. Thank you guys so much for stopping by. Hate to see you go, but we will have lots to catch up on next time on the Local Lou Podcast. Yeah.